Hey everybody, this is Brett. And I'm Christian. And you're listening to the Gilded Films Podcast. 1951 edition. Everybody, it's me, Christian, one of your favorite hosts of the Guild of Films podcast. Here, we are back with another episode of Which Picture Was Best, which we talk about the Academy Award nominations for Best Picture for a specific year and see if that the actual winner should have actually won and give our opinions. Like I said, hi, I'm Christian. We're here to talk about 1951. It is the 24th Academy Awards. I'm just realizing that we did 1950 already. So we got the first two years of that decade knocked out of the way. Um, actually some pretty good, pretty good movies here for the five that were nominated. Um, so we'll get into those a little later, but hello to me, hello to Brett. Hello, hello. And Brett, you're actually going to introduce our special guest host. We have somebody totally new. We got a new person for this new season. Yes, absolutely. Our guest today is Owen Daly. Owen reached out to me on Twitter a while back, right when we were in the middle of our last season and has been very patient as we've slowly made our way through, um, picked this film. And Owen, we're really excited to have you on. Uh, Anything you want to share before we go ahead and dive into this episode? um yeah no thank you for um finally like i'm so excited to finally join you know i've been listening to a couple of episodes um, and really enjoying the way he's discussed these movies so i'm just excited to discuss as you say a very good list of films for best picture which is not something i can say about a lot of years yeah yes absolutely absolutely Yeah, we do have an exciting year here, 1951. I always enjoy the 50s um, for the most part, 1956, The Outlier. But um, so we are going to go into the Oscars for this year. This was, as Christian said, the 24th Academy Awards. They were held on March 20th, 1952. And Best Picture that year went to An American in Paris. I'm sure we'll have some thoughts on that and what was expected and kind of what that was all about. Best director went to George Stevens for A Place in the Sun. This was first of two wins for him. We actually already discussed his second with Giant in 1956. So um, both within that decade. Best actress went to Vivian Lee for A Streetcar Named Desire. Uh, this was her second win. We talked about her first with Gone with the Wind. Both performances, that I would say, are, are pretty iconic in their own ways. Um, Best Actor went to Humphrey Bogart, finally got his Oscar. Um, It was actually only his second nomination, which is kind of wild to think about. But he did finally get a win this year for the African Queen. And I saw he was the last man to be born in the 19th century to win an Oscar for a leading role, Um, which was pretty interesting. I think he was born in 1899. So... Uh, all right. So we also have Best Supporting Actress Kim Hunter, also for A Streetcar Named Desire. Best Supporting Actor Carl Malden, also for A Streetcar Named Desire. Both names that were pretty new to the film scene, um, but were involved in the Broadway play. Adapted screenplay went to A Place in the Sun, and original screenplay went to An American in Paris. So all of the, the big five, the winners here, 
these categories were all from Best Picture nominees, except for Humphrey Bogart. And so really interested to see what we think about all those. Some other facts about the ceremony, uh, most wins was a tie between an American in Paris and a place in the sun, both walked away with six. Um, a lot of technical categories, one was in color, one was in black and white, so they kind of split a lot of those. Um, and A Streetcar Named Desire actually had the most nominations with 12 and obviously did well in the acting categories. This was hosted by Danny Kay, um, and An American in Paris was the second color film to win Best Picture after Gone with the Wind and the first since Grand Hotel to win without an acting nomination. Gene Kelly won an honorary Oscar primarily for his achievements in choreography on film the night before at the Governor's Awards. Um, and Rashomon won an honorary Oscar this year as the best foreign language film of the year. Now, this is one that I was originally going to discuss. And then Owen reminded me that it was nominated for another award a year later. So I promise we will get to Rashomon. We are not going to skip that monumental movie. So be on the lookout for that 1952 episode someday. I believe how I remember it from 1950 <laughs> is that we said we discuss it in this year. Yes. So that's, I mean, like what a movie that the yeah. power it has to go for three years. Yeah. We've mentioned on three, we're going to mention on three episodes at least. So yeah, yeah. no, it is. Yeah, international cinema is always weird in um, the first like 50 years because you have like them being nominated for foreign language and then the year, the next year being nominated in non categories. I think of something like what is a day for a night in the 70s and mm. um, was one best foreign film. Then the next year, Valentina Corteza was nominated for supporting actress. So it yeah. like it's always so odd. But thankfully, we're in an era now where. Uh, in, international successes are released in the year they first premiered. Yes, absolutely. It makes things a lot easier. I know we're obviously obsessives who like to, you know, do our own personal awards and things like that. And it just makes it easier when we can all align like that. So, but yeah, that is a brief rundown of the Oscars from that year. I'm sure we'll dive into a little bit more of it as we go along. But any thoughts that either of you have? general over the ceremony itself before we dive into the film specifically none all right no, not really much to say perfect well then we will go ahead and start looking at these five nominees this was a year of five and so we've got those to discuss here and i am actually going to take us away first with the first film here which is decision before dawn and so 1951, um, six years after the end of World War II. And so, of course, we've got a World War II movie here um, as part of the lineup. Uh, this was directed by Anatole Litvak um, and based on a novel called Call It Treason. And it's about these um, German prisoners of war who are recruited by their American captors during World War II um, to basically go against um the, the superiors that they once worked for and basically become spies in a sense across enemy lines and so it's a process of the american troops are going through and interviewing german prisoners and trying to see who has ideals that are different from the nazis who has a disdain for them who can we trust possibly that might do this job for us 
Um, and they end up with two um, major ones in the film. One is Tiger, who's played by Hans Christian Bleck. And he's he's more so one who like doesn't really care. He kind of wants to be on the winning side. He kind of did his own thing. He was a circus performer, just that kind of guy. On the other hand, you've got Happy, who's played by Oscar Werner, who is definitely an idealist. He has ideas about the ways he, th- that things should be and um, is very much against where his country has gone under the Third Reich. And so they both join for different reasons, um, and they end up in a mission alongside an American sergeant um, played by Richard Basehart, where they are basically trying to go behind enemy lines to secure a um, surrender of troops while also trying to hold off a group of soldiers who might have an issue with that. And so they all have their different missions. And as we go along, we're kind of following them. We're mostly following Happy, Oscar Varner's character, as he goes through and encounters different German characters who have different ideas about the war and about their country um, and his effort to kind of help complete this mission. And so um, I was really kind of struck by this movie just because I wouldn't expect an American film so soon after World War II to have German characters included among the protagonists. Um, that was kind of shocking to me. And I, I appreciate the film for that because I think as we go through, we see that, you know, all the different people are not all like-minded. They're very complex. They have different ideas. And we do see that primarily through the eyes of a German character who was a German soldier and is now working for the Americans. Um, the film does take a while, I think, to get past all the heavy exposition and kind of decipher what the mission is all about. That part could be a little bit slow for me. Um, it's just kind of heavy on the, the military terms and what's going on there. But once we get in happy shoes and we're going along and we are kind of experiencing um, you know, this war-torn part of the world and his place in it, I found the film really interesting. And I think it has interesting ideas about um, kind of through happy what it means to want what's best for a country. Um, it's almost kind of like a, a patriotism versus nationalism type thing that's going on here. And so really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed Oscar Warner. I think he is a really good performance here as well as Hans Christian Bleck. But the one that I actually enjoyed the most was Hildegard Neff, who plays Um, a German sex worker who happy encounters along the way. And she doesn't have very many scenes, but she is so perfect at what she's supposed to do. She's one that I could easily empathize with. She has kind of a monologue where she just has so much underlying emotion. And it's something that, you know, I could see from any big Hollywood star. And here we have someone that I'm not really familiar with as an actress. And so she was definitely the standout for me, but overall, I think it's a well-acted film. I think it's well shot. Um, like I said, it, it goes in directions that I would not expect from a World War II film in 1951, at least made in America. So I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I, um, <laughs> I kind of, I don't know. I This is my second time revisiting this movie, just kind of in preparation for the podcast. And I'm just kind of left, just not terribly excited by it um I, I love hearing your passion for it unfortunately I just can't relate that same passion I think um I mean the ideas that you say about it being the kind of people it follows so close to the war is an exciting prospect I just 
the kind of beginning really left me very cold and um I just don't feel like it was able to get past that um but I do I do agree I think Oscar Werner who is very good in the film and I think even though he does a lot of incredible work I just I don't know it's I hate starting out on this note because it's not it's it's (laughs) I do have passion for these movies we'll get into it but this one just is is fine it's not terrible like I can't say it's terrible it's just rather bland for me and I I watched it earlier today and I'm even you describing the movie I forgot things that happened um so I'll go back and say that I liked it um and even thinking about it I'm not exactly sure what you know what no what I liked about it is beforehand, I thought it was going to be similar to The Longest Day, which we had to watch for 62, right? Yeah. Um, and I mean, war movies like that that are so long and extended, I don't feel it. This was, I mean, this is two hours. It's fine. I really did like Oscar Werner in it. I think that's the majority of the reason why I really like this. I really under, I, I honestly could not understand from the beginning what this movie was going to be about other than ex-German um, military people you know, kind of going against their own side and helping out the ally troops and all this. But I don't know. It, I think for me, it was only enjoyable because it wasn't your typical, okay, everybody's going to be fighting and we're going to see these long battle sequences. It's more akin to like, I mean, uh, obviously with like 1917, they have battle sequences, but you're following like this one specific person here on their mm-hmm. own mission to do something. Yes, I also agree that... Um, uh, names, 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 names. Hildegard. Hildegard. Hildegard yeah. Yes. Neff is very good in this also. And I actually put her down for my own personal things, which obviously we'll get to later on. Um, but no, she is also very good in this. This whole movie is just, I think it's there. I don't think I would ever see it again, given the chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I enjoyed it. And I, I think I really did enjoy it because there was no large battle sequences. Because oftentimes with war movies, we don't need that. Just give us the human emotional aspect of it all. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I see what you mean, because like as good as Oscar Verter is, and he's really good here, I think, you know, when you, you're we're watching these films as a group and look at the other lead actor performances we're going to get to. We'll get there when we get there. But, you know, it, it's a really good performance. But when you're looking at some of the others, it, it probably doesn't hold up the same way. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I. Yeah, it's one that I definitely don't think is it's far from perfect. I still think like the very end of the film is kind of weird because it centers on um, Richard Basehart's character and he kind of has this like internal monologue that goes through. Um, I can understand why they end there, but it it, kind of came through as kind of like, oh, American hoorah type thing in the end there for me. But where it's like this whole um, movie is about a German person. And then at the very end, it's like, well, I, don't forget who made this. Yes, it, exactly. Exactly. So it, it does kind of leave on a weird note, even though the stuff that leads up to it, I really enjoyed. Um, so as far as Oscar success, this was definitely, this was a year where most of the nominees got a ton of nominations. That was not the case with this movie. It was just nominated for Best Picture and Best Film Editing. Um, And I would probably say out of the five, it's I would probably guess it's probably the least remembered. Um, Oh, is it, though? Is it? I 
There's one who, other, obviously, in contention. We'll, who's we'll going there, to but... who's going to remember a streetcar named Desire? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> not where I thought you were going with that, but we'll see. Um, so yeah, any further thoughts on Decision Before Dawn before we go on to our next film? All right. Well, Christian, you do have our next one, so go ahead and take us away. Oh my gosh, I do, don't I? Okay, so our next movie is a, a film that takes place in a place I don't like to go anytime, ever. And that's a place in the sun, because it's hot outside. Although I went outside today, and it was very humid. So, yeah. A yeah. Place in the Sun, however, is like, um, if when I think about 1951, I just want to preface with this. When I think of 1951, and then I go to Letterboxd, and then I go to Twitter... It's like, this is, this is the movie that if this was, you know, in the modern day, everybody would be crazy about this movie. Okay. It kind of makes sense on various levels, but we'll see. Anyway, so the story takes place in present day. So the fifties and George Eastman, who's played by Montgomery Clift, he's sort of a, I don't know how you'd say this. He comes from a very established family, but he himself through his mother's side of it all is not himself established he is a bellhop at a hotel but he happens upon his uncle at this hotel and his uncle's like hey i'll give you a job whatever trying to build up your american dream haha uh at this factory it's a very entry-level job he meets alice played by shelly winters and they sort of form a friendship that then turns into a little bit more of something else into a mutual attraction with each other they fall in love the only trouble is george you know has the eye for another person who's a socialite angela vickers which i swear i've heard that name before i don't know how they're do i know an angela vickers i don't know now they're thinking about it it sounds like a newscaster interesting anyway that's played by elizabeth taylor whoa there's lizzie taylor her and monty clift would be like best friends until his death anyway so he also has the eye for her but at the same time alice over here Mousy Shelly Winters, although we love Shelly Winters, I will say. Uh, she's pregnant. Gasp. Okay. But at the same time, can they really take on this challenge of having a baby? She wants to go for a, you know, we don't really say the word in the 1950s, but she wants to go and try to end this pregnancy, but she can't because insert joke here. Oh, the United States of America. But anyway, so as he slowly is falling for Angela, he has this trouble with Alice. It's like, which woman do I really love? What's happening here? And then something happens to Alice. I don't really want to say this exactly what happens, but something does happen, which leads to George then going through a whole lot of other shit in his life. Um, let's just say Alice disappears. I won't say how. It's kind of shocking if you haven't ever seen this movie before. And it's also very sad. This movie is really nothing but sadness personified, if we're going to be honest or anything. Um, but I, okay, so this is my hot take of this. I really used to like this movie a lot, but on rewatching it, and I bought the Paramount Presents Blu-ray of this, um, which looks great, um, obviously. And Elizabeth Taylor, like the dresses that she has on this, great. Shelly Winters, great. Monty Clift, great. But the film itself, I'm not too crazy about it. I don't think it does much for me um, in terms of like, I'll sit there and be like, wow, this is actually great. Wow, I feel for any of these characters. I think the most I feel is for Alice because she gets really, she gets the hard end of this 
I mean, everything that just happens in her life. And she meets basically the wrong guy at the wrong time. But the acting, I think, in this is phenomenal. The way it looks, there's a lot of good scenes here that are just like beautifully shot. The black and white really works here. I did read somewhere that George Stevens said that the black and white will work here much better because of the tone of the film. That's a definite plus. But it's like the feeling that I get out of this. And I know you're supposed to get like, heart. I feel like you're supposed to get heartbreak. I don't feel it. And because of that, it only goes so far for me to where I'm like, will I watch this again? Maybe if I'm doing like a marathon of, I don't know, like best director winners or screenplay winners. But this being such like a big popular movie and spoiler alert, it wins six Academy Awards. I mean, it wins six of these things. I think it also won the Golden Globe, possibly, question mark. I think Um, so. Yeah, which is the first year that the Globe split between musical and drama. So, I mean, it's a big movie, but for me, it's it's fine. So don't come for me, film Twitter, though, because... (laughs) I know y'all love this. I looked at the letterbox reviews <laughs> and it's like, this is a masterpiece. Yeah, it's it's not a masterpiece. That's it. Although it's nice to look at. Owen, agree, disagree? Um, well, I was not expecting that. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I mean, I I I the last film, the film before, I didn't like, so that's okay for us to have a difference of opinion. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's strange because I actually um earlier like I think last week I'd watched the uh, 1930s version of the same story because obviously this film's based on a novel which is based on a true event. Um, and it's just worked out that I've watched the two versions of the story and. I think this, I, I'm a very big fan of melodrama and I think this kind of is one of the best examples from this decade of that kind of, I do, I get that romance and I get that tragedy from it. I think the main three stars are just really excellent and knowing like Elizabeth Taylor was 20 when she made this movie, it's it's wild that she, I mean, at this point she already, she's already a child star. So this is kind of, another lane for her to go into even though she's not it's not she's not the first person I think of when I think of this movie um I agree that Shelley Winters especially really impresses in this I think that scene with the doctor that kind of um scene where she's pleading for her she's almost pleading for her life and it, it like watching that scene in the current climate that is America and I guess the world in terms of the abortion debate is just that even sadder because obviously everyone who is upset with that decision for to overturn Roe v. Wade is aware that, especially during this decade, there was a lot of um un not unhealthy, like unsafe abortions being taken. And were this movie not made during the code, it probably could have included a scene like that, mm-hmm. where that led to her, that led to very bad circumstances. So I think that was in my mind when watching, especially that scene. I think Shelley Winters really kind of plays this pitiful character which is not something that I would expect from Shelley Winters I usually envision her as this very confident very like out there person and she just really recedes into herself throughout the whole movie and while I feel like the film is trying to get you against her to understand some decisions that Montgomery Cliff's character makes I don't 
I was never truly against her. If anything, the film kind of made him into this like pure villain, but based on decisions he made. And I think, I don't know, I just really love this. And I hadn't watched it in a very, very long time. So this was kind of an excuse for me to rewatch it in picking this here. And I was over the moon that I'm still in love with it the way it is. Boom. I will, <laughs> I will say, I think, like I said, the, the performances of this is what I look at the most of the things I love about it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's all going to go back to Shelly Winters, how she's just incredible in this. And really quick before Brett gives your opinion, um, I read that I guess she was upset that she, like she was ever perceived as sort of a mousy woman next to being, of course, put in like Elizabeth Taylor, because Elizabeth Taylor, she's on all the promotional material of this movie. Yeah. And yet watching this, she's definitely a supporting character and everything. But I guess then Shelley Winters bought like a convertible or the one that Elizabeth Taylor drives in this that really put her out there and was like, hey, I'm not just this mousy woman. I can also be like a serious actress and put me in a comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then she became the big brassy lady that we know today, like Poseidon Adventure and stuff. Yeah. But again, I love Shelly Winters. She's great. Yeah, I, I was reading um, the book Inside Oscar before this, the, the chapter on 1951, and they talked about how like Shelly Winters really wanted to win this Oscar. Um, and so much so that she was still like, I could have sworn I heard the presenter say my name. Um, so I can't help but feel a little bad, even though Vivian Lee, we'll get to her. She's terrific. But um but uh, yeah, I, I, de- I think I'm kind of right in the middle here. I, I agree with points from both of you. I, um, I do enjoy the melodrama. I enjoy the romance. Um, and I, yeah, all three, you know, actors, Clift, Winters, Taylor, they're all just bringing it. I, I think they're all great. Um, they, they do really great stuff with what they're given. And it's what they're given that, provides a little bit of a a stop with me in the movie um because with Shelly Winters especially you know her character comes in um and just is so lovely and whatnot and you're right we have that scene where she's talking with the doctor about the abortion and it's terrific and it feels like the film is really on her side and then it's almost like this character does a complete switch into like scorned woman scorned wife figure territory and from there i I think it's interesting that we have different perceptions because i i agree owen i i don't think that the film is on her side the way that i am um because yeah i i totally i empathize with alice trip and i i want what's best for her i come to really dislike cliff's character in the end but it's like the film isn't backing that up um this is one that I will say it is one I do want to watch again at some point, just because I really want to like this movie a lot. And I do like it. Um, I, I like it quite a bit, but I, I want to love it um, because I do enjoy a lot of the moments of romance, both between uh, Clifton Winters and Clifton Taylor. I think they both have moments that are excellent and really just pure. Um, and I have to say, I thought the direction from Stevens was pretty fantastic. Um, when you think about, you know, the way he was likely directing these actors and the performances they give, but also how he kind of frames them. There's a scene where um, 
you know, they, they sneak into um, winter's room in the middle of the night, her character's room. And they have, you know, they go and they were led to imply have sex at that time. And the way that shot is, is really nice. Granted the limitations they had in 1951. There's also in, um, George's Cliff's character, his apartment, there's always that blinking Vickers sign behind him. And, you know, assuming that that's, you know, one of the businesses owned by Angela's father, her parents, it's just, in a, it's a brilliant like piece of like stage direction and, or, you know, art direction and just having that kind of in the background, because most of the time when we see him in his apartment, he's dealing with things that are going on with Alice. And then Angela's there in the background. Um, so like the Stevens, I'm watching this and I, so far the films we watch, I don't have an issue with that win, despite some of my complaints about the movie, just because I think he was, he did have a lot of decisions that went into it and it's so well shot. And in some ways it does go above and beyond what we might expect of it, but it's those things like the, the way it goes with Alice's character and I love melodrama, but that courtroom scene with the boat and everything, it just got a little bit too much for me. I was like, okay, this is a bit ridiculous where he grabs like the, the oar and like smacks it. And it's like, I, you know, I've got, I've got plenty of emotion. I don't need that. But, um, you know, that scene, that scene could have been a lot better too. If it took like the old fashioned montage type courtroom scenes, mm. where it's just a bunch of quick edits saying like, how did you do it? Did you do it? You probably did it. And then it like climaxes with that boat scene and the oar and everything. Yeah. And I just say, I think Cliff is excellent in that scene. I, I think that's one of the high points of the movie for him. Um, so yeah, like I said, I'm kind of in the middle. I I really like it. I don't love it. Um, and it is one that I want to get back to at some point, but need to sit with it for a while and kind of think about the direction it takes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like you mentioned M. Stevens, because obviously, I mean, he did win the directing Oscar this year. And I think it's a very deserved choice. I especially love a lot of the um, camera work he uses. I There's the shot when um, we're first introduced to Angela through kind of the POV of uh, the Clift character. And I mean, it helps that Montgomery Clift is the way he looks. I mean, he's one of the most probably just kind of striking film stars of the time. And so that helps in terms of making it a beautiful shot. But I think Steven's work, especially there, is really effective. And even the scene on the lake, just the way the camera cuts back and forth between the two characters present. If we're mm-hmm. if we're not going to be splitting anything, I'll just say that. Um, I really enjoy how that was uh, framed. I think while I can agree that the court scenes towards the end of the movie kind of dip a bit, I think that scene on the lake is probably the peak of the filmmaking in the film and I'm not necessarily saying that it takes a deep dive I'm just saying that's kind of filmmaking wise the the, like most thrilling sequence in the whole film and that has a lot to do with Stevens with the editor with the two actors present as well yeah I also and I want to watch when I watch this again I'm hoping I'm removed because when I I'm awful about this when I before I watched it, I kind of looked at what it was based on and I saw it was based on a true, like true story. And of course I dove into that story. So I went in with like that on my mind and it's a little bit different than what's portrayed here. So, but it does that the character motivations are interesting. Um, 
especially from Cliff's point of view too. So Christian, do you want to go over all the wins and nominations that this got? Mm-hmm. You would think this is the one best picture with all the wins, but we have right. six wins. George Stephen wins director, adapted screenplay, black and white cinematography. Edith Head picking up another one for black and white costume designs. Specifically, I mean, for the dress that Elizabeth Taylor is wearing, that white, beautiful dress. Um, film editing and scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture. Interesting. <laughs> or comedy. Okay. I mean, they split and everything else. And then three additional noms for picture. Shelley Winters picks up for actress nomination and Monty Clift for actor. Yes. Left out Elizabeth Taylor, which is interesting. So I feel like, honestly, she's she's very much supporting in this. But if you at the time were to throw Elizabeth Taylor into a supporting actress category, <laughs> that would not the woman would have gotten that tracheotomy much earlier somehow good point all right well any other thoughts on a place in the sun before we go on to our next one can i segue into our next one go for it okay our next one is a film in which brett said a little bit too much quo and not enough (laughs) (laughs) and not and not enough romans i guess (laughs) uh this next one had a little bit too much of everything, if you ask me, especially a runtime. Um, but our next one is Quovetus. And you have to bear with me a little bit because there's a lot of names here and I have it all pulled up because it, there's so much to it that I might not remember it all. There's three um, hours worth of names. Yeah, pretty much. It is a, an ancient Roman epic um, directed by Mervyn Leroy. Um, and it's basically the story of the 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 conflicts between emperor nero of rome and um the the rise of christianity at this time um and so we don't necessarily get from nero's point of view it's mostly from marcus uh the nicius i think is how they said that in the movie um it's played by robert taylor and a lot of it is actually his romance with lygia who is played by um deborah carr so the first hour, hour and a half plus of this movie is basically um, Taylor lusting after Carr, um, who is a technically a hostage, um, but she's been adopted by um, an old Roman general. And um, Taylor's character is a, a current military commander who is very much against Christianity, and she happens to be Christian. But... Um, they start to fall in love and it deals with all the, the problems and consequences of that. And let's just say that the movie spends a lot of time on that without getting much of anywhere, in my opinion. Then it kind of gets into Nero and being a tyrannical um, kind of dictator. Um, in this movie, he's kind of presented as kind of an idiot. Um, he's played by Peter Ustinov. Um, but he is very cruel. He ends up burning Rome and blaming it on the Christians. And that leads to a lot of conflicts, both with him and the Christians. Um, but even some of the people in his court begin to kind of like side against him. Um, and that leads to a bunch of complications and some, some violence, warfare, gladiator stuff, your typical ancient Roman stuff. Um, 
you could tell I, I thought, you know, this three hour movie was way too long. Um, it spent so much time on like the early exposition with, you know, the, the romance quote unquote, that's forming and um, just establishing characters without really giving them much depth. I, I, the only way I can think to describe it is just super boring and dull and the dialogue is not fruitful whatsoever. It's not enticing. Then we finally get into the action sequences near the end and it's a little bit better, but it's still not very good because it doesn't feel very earned. It feels kind of sudden to me. Um, it makes it a little bit more exciting. It's a little, like, more like something I want to watch, but the problem is I don't care about any of these characters really. Um, the only one that I, I kind of enjoyed a little bit was the one played by Leo Ginn. Um, he's the uncle of the main character and he's one that kind of has a difference of a change of mind as the film goes about and has some interesting arc to him. Um, but he's also a, a, a minor character in the story. So it doesn't really stick around long. You know, with movies like this, I, I often go to at least it, it does some things good. In this case, I think the costumes are obviously good. I think the production design is probably about as good as you can expect from a film like this. But honestly, I, I don't think it's that visually stunning. Um, the cinematography, I'm sure it was a big deal at the time, you know, big color film epic, but I don't think it holds up that well. It kind of feels like a bunch of other movies that came later in, and it frankly did it better. Um, and Peter Usnov is, and I understand the character was sort of written this way, but was so annoying in this movie. I was just like, please just shut up and, and do not come on screen again because I can't take this anymore. Um, neither could my favorite character, uh, Leo Ginn. Um, he makes a decision basically because the guy is so annoying. So, you know, I'm not going to spoil that, but yeah, I obviously wasn't a fan of this movie. It is one of those overstuffed uh, epics that doesn't really care a whole lot about its characters and really fails because of that. And uh, this was the only film that I was not, I didn't rewatch. And I don't enjoy it at all. I think it's terrible. If there's anything that makes me not want to list the 1950s as the greatest decade for film, it's the endless amounts of biblical um, ep epics, epics for, I don't know why they refer to them as epic. Um, I, I agree with you. I think Peter Ustinov is basically playing an adult baby throughout, just constantly whinging about things not going his way. Um, it could be viewed as a campy performance, but I, I just think it's really bad. And I, like Peter Ustinov is known for things like playing pro in later Agatha Christie adaptations. He's a two-time Oscar winner after this nomination. And um, yeah, it's, it's just really bad and very boring and very long and not the best Kovayadis film I've ever seen. If you want a better film, see Kovayadis Aida from 2021. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, <laughs> I don't enjoy this at all. And this was the one film that I'm, I'm sorry that I had to subject you to. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, 
I thought it was fine. So, oh, I'm okay. So it's not my favorite. I'll never see this again. Um, Toby was like, when we were on the halfway part of it, because the DVD version is like split into two parts with not mind you with not even like the little intermission interact thing. It's just like it ends and then it immediately picks up. But anyway, Toby was like, this is three hours. What do you always say about Brett when it's a long movie? <laughs> Rest in peace, Brett. Because, you know, <laughs> my God. Okay, so uh, I liked Peter Houston off in this, I will say. Um, yeah, I don't know. Anytime there's a leader in charge who's declining and going Nazi cuckoo, sure, I'll take it. It gave me it gave me Trump. I don't know. It gave me that kind of vibe to it. Okay. And seeing his empire falling, the whole burning of Rome thing. I'm like, Oh, Nero fiddled, whatever. I don't even know. That wasn't even a fiddle that he was using. Okay. So that myth is out. One of the biggest reasons why I like this. Okay. It's going to sound weird. And Brett knows this because I texted you is there's a line in this movie (laughs) that says, something that i'm gonna pull up because i have to go back to my text let's see but it's a line that is like a throwaway line here it is christians are they the ones who worship some dead carpenter that line sent me somewhere else i wasn't even focusing on the movie i was on my computer doing my thing i hear this line i pause the movie and i laughed okay the line is hilarious. It's unintentionally hilarious. Some of this movie is unintentionally hilarious. Okay, whatever. It's a nice movie in terms of the costumes. Yes, a bajillion other sword and sandal movies have done this better, like immensely better. But whatever. You know what? If you ever see this, which obviously don't, please, Covitis Aida, much better. Mm, as we, yeah. As we all, yes, as we all agree. Um, yes. Nothing to do with Rome. But, you know, um, but yeah, I don't know. Don't even, don't even waste your time on this, okay? I thought it was funny, and it shouldn't be funny. This is a serious movie. It, I, I'm glad it provided you with some laughs. I, I can't say the same, but f- for your sake, I, I'm glad it provided some. Um, one of the biggest disappointments for me is that, unlike with The Place of the Sun, I didn't read too much into this beforehand. And I go on Wikipedia and it says that there were uh, uncredited cameos by Elizabeth Taylor and Sophia Loren in this movie. I wish I had known that beforehand because I would have been intrigued to just be watching for them the entire time and would have made a game out of it. But did you all know that? Did you see them in the movie? No. Okay. <laughs> and it wasn't even until after I read that fact too that I'm like, it's it's two hours and 40 minutes into this. It's too late to turn back now. Probably missed them. Yeah. Not that it, yeah, but. Um, well, this one, it, it's interesting because it, it had a lot of Oscar success in terms of nominations. Um, it was nominated for Best Picture, uh, two nominations for Supporting Actor for Leo Ginn and Peter Ustinov, uh, scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture, art direction, cinematography, costume design, all for the color categories and film editing. Um, but fortunately did not win any of those where it did have a big win was in the box office. Um, I saw this was the movie that basically saved MGM from bankruptcy. And it was by far the number one movie of 1951, um, at least at the U S box office. So I'm going to bring up something because when I read that fact out loud, even Toby said, 
like the whole um this saved MGM from bankruptcy. I feel like we've seen other movies that said that exact same thing. <laughs> and how was it this one? Like, I don't get how still in 1950 people are, I mean, this is, you know, the beginning of the 50s, but people are obsessed with these Roman type epics. Okay, I just don't get it. The spectacle of them all. Yes, like the Ten Commandments, if you go back to 56, is the big exception to this all because that is like a pretty good film. But this is like, come on. This is... And eight... It got eight nominations. <laughs> Decision Before Dawn only got two. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I also don't understand the biblical epic um, genre, basically. I mean, Ten Commandments has Anne Baxter just being fun, and not many other films have that. Um, yeah, this is definitely, I mean, unfortunately, this wasn't the end for biblical epics being nominated for Best Picture. I mean, Two years later, you had, I think, The Robe was nominated for Best Picture. I mean, Ben-Hur at the end of the decade yeah. won. Um, so, I mean, Gladiator in the 2000s won. <laughs> they seem to, it seems to be a genre that people enjoy. I mean, it makes sense mm-hmm. because there's such a large amount of people um, believing in these religions. So I guess they want to see the stories they've they seemingly read about be put on film um yeah i don't yeah. i don't get it eight nominations why <laughs> yeah this is one we're all we're all mostly in agreement with um yeah I, like you said chris i don't know if any of us will be rushing to rewatch it anytime soon but it's there all right. Well, any further thoughts on Quo Vetus before we go on to our next film? Um, I have to say, I hate this movie even more so for how much it underuses Deborah Carr. Um, I mean, Deborah Carr in this decade in particular was one of the greatest actresses of the decade. I mean, obviously she had things like Far From Here to Eternity and Teen Sympathy and King and I come later, but this film just wastes her totally, leaving her. She's just, I hate saying she's boring, but she is. I mean, this is yeah. this would be one of those roles she'd refer to as her stick of the arse roles. Um, <laughs> and that makes sense. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm happy she has a moneymaker in her filmography, but that is even more offensive to me than the film is that it underuses Deborah Carr, and I don't enjoy that. Yeah, I. It feels like a role that would go to like a not well-known actress or something like that, not someone who is as esteemed as Deborah Carr. Um, rough couple of years with this in 1950. Wasn't she the one in King Solomon's Minds? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. So rough couple. But yeah, obviously, uh, she's a great actress who, yeah, does is not given much of anything to work with here unfortunately all right well owen you actually have our next film so are you ready to take us away with that one yes i am very excited and um, our last non-winning film was street Corner desire and um, the Ilya kazan directed adaptation from the stage play the pulitzer prize winning tennessee williams play that he directed 
three years prior. Um, he stars Marlon Brando, Kim Hunter, and Carl Malden, as you say, from the Broadway production. Um, but in the role of Blanche, not transferring from Broadway, is previous Oscar winner Vivian Lee. And the story is about Blanche visiting her sister in New Orleans and coming into contact with Stella, her sister, played by Kim Hunter's brutish husband, Stanley Kowalski, played by Marlon Brando in one of his first, not his film debut, but one of his earlier roles. Um, yeah, this film is kind of a monumental film because of the in the kind of, I guess it's more so known as the introduction of method, method acting to film. And I think what I enjoy most about this film is how the two different acting styles, the one, the more histrionic acting style that came prior is going head to head with the method acting of the actor's studio in New York with Marlon Mando. Um, I just think this is an incredible movie. Um, I'm probably going to say more about it, but that's just my initial thought is it's wonderful. I watch it at least, I watch it at least once a year. Um, so I'm very excited to hear what you guys have to say about it. I will go next. Yeah, you go next. Yes, I will go next because I've seen this before. I love it equally. Um, I think it's a great, great film. Um, Rewatching it this time, and this is my umpteenth time doing so, I realize it's probably one of my favorites of the year if not the favorite of the year. Um, the performance in the, it, the performances in this are, I mean, they're spectacular. When I say acting, this is acting all around, um, especially from Brando, but especially from Vivian Lee. I think out of the two wins that she has from this and Gone with the Wind, I prefer this win. I think this one is, I mean, it, you're really getting to the deepest, darkest moments, not of just Blanche, but of Vivian Lee herself and knowing kind of her own personal struggles with mental health issues and then relating it back to this character who has her own personal struggles it's like this is Vivian sadly just playing herself put in New Orleans and Stanley's involved um but I don't know that's that's pretty much boiled down to it I remember I think when the first time I saw this because it was post that AFI list that came out in 2007 which hey AFI you need to update that um but I watched it because obviously, you know, that iconic Stella, Stella, that thing is like, that's the poster child. That one scene here alone. That, I mean, the shit, that made me want to watch it. And I also remember in high school where I was in, I was in honors English class. So we didn't get to read this for whatever reason, but everybody else did. And the book covers that everybody else had was like the shirtless Marlon Brando. And again, this is like Catholic school. <laughs> So there's like a bunch of kids just walking around with Marlon Brando on the cover of their books. And here I am having to read. God, I don't even know what we read. I don't even know. We read like a Shakespeare play, which I mean, obviously everybody has to do. But I'm like, I want to read Streetcar, which I finally ended up doing in college. But it's a great play. It doesn't feel stagey at all to me, this movie. Um, and there's a there's a plethora of Golden Girl references, my friends. I mean, Blanche is Blanche. There's also a quote, which I have pulled up, which I will say. It is an iconic episode when they're at the sperm bank and everybody's like, I know this episode except Brett. But anyway, 
Blanche's daughter is wanting to get artificially inseminated and Blanche is not having it. And Blanche says, you are Devereaux and a Devereaux has never had to pay for it. I certainly haven't. And Dorothy says, she's always depended on the kindness of strangers. And I yield the floor. Nice. Well, Brett, did you like it? I did like it. Um, So I have to say, this was my first time watching it. Um, in fact, this was like one of those movies that um, it, it's it's one of the most like classic movies that a lot of people seem to love that I had yet to watch, um, like pr- near the top of that list. And there are a lot of them on that list. Let me just say. Um, but this one was up there because um, it's one that I've heard about so much and heard almost nothing but great things about. Um especially with the acting and yeah, I don't really have much to add in the acting point. Cause it is terrific. I mean, I was, you know, especially watching Brando just because we recently did the episode on, on the waterfront and I love that movie. I love that performance. And so I was interested to watch this here because it obviously came before that and um, was kind of his, his big breakout for film. And I was just kind of struck by how different those two roles are. Um, I, I didn't know much about the plot at all, so I didn't know what kind of character this was. And I'd say he is horrifying. I mean, he is, he really plays up that kind of monstrous character that he is. And it's really effective and, and really, really strong. Um, and he just, you know, it, it's Brando. I, I don't know how to put it, except like it, it's, it's this awful character and you hate him and whatnot, but your eyes are just also drawn to him because it's Brando. Um, and he's amazing. And obviously Vivian Lee, um, just outstanding, outstanding. I already one of my favorite best actress wins, I think, just because I think she's incredible. Um, and you know, I, I thought she was one of the high points of Gone with the Wind, which is a movie with its issues, but you know, we now we have this you know, over a decade later, and it's like a whole other level um, doing something new. And I really just appreciate the movie for for being a reflection on mental illness and abuse um, in a way that is very upfront that once again, I would not really expect from 1951. Um, and like Christian said, I, I didn't find it stagey either. I, I thought it was well opened up the actors obviously carry so much that even if it were stagey you probably wouldn't notice it um as christian has seen i really really like this film once again i don't know if i love this movie and it's one of those where i can't exactly pinpoint anything wrong with it um maybe the the melodrama is just a tad bit too extreme for me um at times i like i was listening to the dialogue and I was like, do people talk like this? Um, and you know, I, it's almost like, it's almost too clear that it was written by a, a great writer, which is a weird thing to say, but it, it almost feels at times. I don't know. I don't know. Unnatural is not the right word, but very stage. And so I don't know. It's one of those that I think also, like I said, it's one that has been very, very hyped up for me. So maybe that just had a little bit too much influence on a first watch. Similar to A Place in the Sun, I do want to revisit it at a later point. That said, even though I, I'm not 
in love with it like many are. I respect it a ton. I really enjoyed it. And I would watch it again tomorrow. I It's of the five movies we've discussed. It's the one that I would be most willing to rewatch. So we'll see. I accept that challenge for you. Okay. Remember you, gave, you remember you gave this to me for Christmas? I did. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. Whoops. What? <laughs> I, I tell you, it's one of my favorite things. Think about that. Yep. There's also, because um, I love bringing up references to other things. There's a great Simpsons episode called A Streetcar Named Marge. Yeah, I see you shaking your head. That um, it's just like a musical version of this. And it's, it's one of my favorite. I think it's my favorite episode of all time that I, I'm only on season seven of my watch of the Simpsons. But so far, it's like my favorite episode just that so they can turn this into a musical and have it like completely destroy the dramatics of it all. I don't know. Um, but I also will say with this and I'm blinking. Oh, my gosh. Oh, no. I OK. When I was watching this on this time, because, you know, a lot of these older films are remade into something else. Um, Blue Jasmine, the film with Kate Blanchett, is like heavily inspired by this mm. um, from what I've read. And so Kate Blanchett, you kind of have to look at her as this Blanche type character. But if they were to ever remake this film, which please don't, and I know they've made TV movies, whatever, Kate Blanchett would be phenomenal in this. And I know she did this in Australia, actually, and in their theaters, but I think she'd be phenomenal in this. Just have her play all the roles because I don't know who else she would who else you would cast in this. Kate Blanchett and all the roles. Yeah, I am. Um, I love this instance mention, um, especially the end of that musical where they make the line. I've always depended on the kindness of strangers into some like cheerful ensemble number. It's it's quite it's it's as deranged as the best of the Simpsons ever was. Um yeah, I, I really, like, I, a lot of people, I could, I, when it comes to theatrical adaptations, people like to throw around the word, oh, it feels stagey, it feels like I'm just watching people play films, but I think what sets this apart from receiving their criticism is how Kazan and his um, artists use the media of film to really get across the story. I mean, knowing, like, noticing that the set is increasingly growing smaller and small, like the space in the set is growing smaller as um, Blanche is getting more and more kind of compressed into like all the lies are building upon her. I think that's really great art direction that you won't get in theater. That is a very filmic type of storytelling. And that's really effective for me. I think the cinematography is gorgeous. Like just how, even though he's playing a horrible character and Marlon Brando from the first minute he shows up on screen and um, is just like beautifully shot. I mean, this scene, the, this first scene between Blanche and, and uh, Stanley is like, whoa, it's like fire. The two actors acting opposite one another, like neither can hide from the other. It seems like they're both trying to challenge each other. And, um, yeah, I just really love this film. And I think it is very, I can understand there being a lot of expectation to it and maybe in a first viewing it not fully hitting you because it totally does come with these really high expectations. And it is a struggle when you visit a film for the first time 
that you're like, do I enjoy this because I'm supposed to, or am I enjoying this because I am enjoying this? I can understand that kind of predicament you might be in. Um, so I hope that you do rewatch it at some point because while a very dark story, it is very rewatchable. And that has a lot to do with the performances, especially, and even with Kazan's direction, who just really understands how film make how, how film tells a story and really puts that to good effect in this film. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned the art direction because it's like, yeah, the way it's shot, and it's just so I, I appreciate that the film was not trying to be like romantic in any way or romanticize it because that place looks grimy and like run down and it's like that's the way it's supposed to feel um it kind of gets you closer to those characters so and she said i even like the blanche says that the first thing that she when she sees stella again it's like you really live in that awful place not like hello how are you i've missed you it's just like i saw you where you lived oh my god please don't make me stay there did you know anything about this when you first saw it, Brett? No, not no. a thing. Um, as opposed to some of it's one that I've I thought about like reading up on, reading the plot and stuff like that, but I kind of wanted to go in fresh. And so, um, yeah, did not know much of anything about it, to be honest. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I won't say it's not a very plot heavy movie. And that's not a bad thing. It's definitely about studying these characters. I mean, studying how far Blanche falls, studying how far Stanley is willing to go in proving that he's right about everything um, and seeing how conflicted Stella is. I mean, obviously the film isn't from the perspective of her, but I think re-watching it multiple times and seeing the work that Kim Hunter is doing you feel really horrible for her because she's stuck in this really she's stuck between a hard a rock and a hard place I mean she really wants to support her sister but she understands that um she she sort of has to let her go because her sister is basically just spiraling in not a healthy way um yeah it's like it's understandable why this film is one of the only the two films to win more than two acting prizes um yeah. yes i don't know if do i mention the um <laughs> wins and nominees uh, the wins and nominations it was up for that year yeah go for it go for it yeah so um as you mentioned before it was nominated for the most of 12 nominations um winning four for actress for vivian lee supporting actress for kim hunter supporting actor for Carl Malden and the art direction, the black and white category. Um, additionally, it was nominated for picture, director, actor for Marilyn Brando, screenplay, sorry, adapted screenplay probably, and scoring of dramatic or comedy picture, sound recording, cinematography and costume design in black and white. So it was very well represented in the nominations. I mean, I can't, there's no category really missed out on that year at least the categories that existed at the time. Um, I could imagine if there was a makeup category at the time, what they do with Vivian Lee especially. I mean, seeing the colorized pictures of her in this blonde wig, which in color looks awful. Like it looks really <laughs> unnatural. Um, works really well in this film because 
like I'm just used to Vivian Lee as this brunette um, actress and she really kind of transforms into this totally just like unlike any other character she's played aside from being a Southern Belle. Um, yeah, it's I, I'm glad that you, well, not glad, I, I'm glad that you mentioned about the kind of personal struggle that Vivian Lee herself went through and how this performance and even because she had performed it in the West End or in London before she did this film, how this character kind of destroyed her. You know, she'd been suffering with mental health issues and would continue to suffer all the way up until she passed away 15 years later, basically. And so it's, I am sort of conflicted in sometimes loving this performance because I'm seeing a basically a human being destroyed by the end. Mm -hmm. I think it's really heart horrific what happens to Blanche but also knowing what Lee went through it's even that bit more horrific because you're kind of seeing the end of her life almost yeah that is chilling um just want to mention for for any listeners who might be interested um with this being the film that you know won three acting Oscars many would probably say it should have won a fourth as well uh, we will be talking about the African Queen in our next episode, so I'm sure we'll be we'll be diving into Bogart and Brando and um, what we think about all that. So that's on the horizon as well. well yeah, this one um, that was fun to discuss, and it's one that definitely has a reputation. Um, any final thoughts on Streetcar before we go on to our Best Picture winner? Um, I just want to mention one more thing. It's it's kind of a very odd thing. Um, the film is number 67 on the AFI passion list. Um, this makes no sense. <laughs> what is passionate about this movie? <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that because I saw, I saw that after I watched it the other day and I was like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. That's a weird list uh, of all the AFI lists. That one's especially weird, but yeah, oh, does not go on there. Oh, we love AFI. We we do with all their complications. <laughs> all right, well, Christian, you have our best picture winner from this year, so feel free to take us away there. OMG! Okay, a film in which Brett said not American enough for me. Oh God. I've been waiting all episode to say that. I knew you were planning something like that. Wow. Thank you. It is an American in Paris uh, from MGM because, you know, MGM and their musicals, they love it. Directed by Vincent Minnelli, starring Gene Kelly. It is inspired by the orchestral composition in American in Paris by George Gershwin um, with songs by George and Ira Gershwin. So actually, it crazy enough, it was only until last night when I rewatched this for like the fifth time that I realized this is not technically based on something else other than being inspired by and having the songs of the Gershwins. So this is a completely original piece. Um, so anyway, so it is about a World War II veteran named Jerry who lives in Paris. That's Gene Kelly. And he just lives his life trying to be a successful artist during the time. He also is friends with a couple of other people, Adam Cook, Oscar Levant, Levant who is a composer, uh, not a successful one at the time, but just trying to make himself 
be known and Henry, uh, or I guess in this case it'd be, yeah, I'd be Henry, um, played by Georges Goutre, who is a sort of a song and dance man himself. He works in the clubs, uh, does a great performance of Alba La Stairway to Paradise. That's a great scene. Um, this is a musical, by the way. I mean, obviously it's MGM. But so Jerry meets one day this lovely woman. Is it Lise or is it Lisa? Lisa. Is it Lisa? Okay, because there's an yeah. E at the end of the name. Played by Leslie Caron. And he sort of falls for her. And there's a charm about her. But she is also kind of with another guy. Ooh, scandalous there. But they have their great moments waltzing on the, the River Seine. But at the same time, Gene Kelly's character is also kind of being courted by this other woman, played by Nina, Nina Foch, who at first it's kind of like, uh, hey, you know, you might be my, my guy that I want, you know, wink, wink and all that. But then she's like, no, 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 I'm just trying to give you a place so you can be a successful artist and all that. Um, it, this really, though, is a love story between Jerry and hopefully Lisa and in the end of it all, there's a great, great, like 17 minute ballet sequence of the actual score of An American in Paris, the Gershwin composition itself. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is, it's a very happy musical. It's a very happy film. And actually, if you're looking back at all these movies that we watch, it's the happiest of them all. I will say this is a very, it's a very bleak year. So, but this is kind of a shocking win. I'm sure Brett, uh, uh, Owen will get into this possibly, but this was a shocking win for the Oscars, which surprisingly enough, but I liked it. I, okay. So I see, I hesitated there. I liked it. I don't think before last night when rewatching this, I've ever liked it as much. I think I started out thinking when I first seen it, maybe five years ago, this is going to be something along the lines of like singing in the rain. I'm so used to Gene Kelly from singing in the rain where it's like, it's that joyous, everybody's dancing so much bright colors, which yes, this has, this has all of that. I don't know what it was though, that never quite clicked with me. I don't know if it was because I'm just realizing Leslie Caron doesn't get a song for herself. Like Debbie Reynolds does. She never sings in this. This is really all about the dancing for her and, the chemistry of her and Gene Kelly is there. I just have never felt it before. But until last night when I'm watching this, it's a pretty good movie. Like I appreciate it a lot more than I ever have before. I think it's really beautiful. I think if there wasn't the divide of like black and white and color movies, this would sweep any and all technical awards. I'm surprised that it did win Best Picture, but at the same time, it's kind of a movie that at the time they would have gone for just because it is an MGM musical and those are popular for the day. But I did appreciate it. And I'm glad that I over time have appreciated more and more and more and more. Yeah, I'll actually go next on this one because I, I think you and I are in a pretty similar boat here, except for the fact that I, I hadn't seen this before. But I remember you saying in the past, like, oh, it's, it's not really that great and so on and so forth. But the slander. Um, well, no, no, no. Like you were saying, you know, you, you didn't used to like it as much as you do now. Um, but I, I'm in pretty much the same boat because I, yeah, I had a lot of fun with it and I found it really joyous and it provides a lot of, you know, what I would want from an MGM musical. I think 
receiving the film can be hard sometimes because a year later we see singing in the rain, get barely anything from the Oscars. Um, and you know, in my mind, that's as much as I enjoy this one, that's without a doubt a superior movie. Why couldn't they have awarded that one? Why, why they have to go with this one? And I think that's something that has maybe stuck with this film over time, but you know, on its own, it's not a singing in the rain. It's not a level, even something like bandwagon, I would say, but uh, it is still a lot of fun, really good. And the dancing is obviously great. Um, and that whole, you know, what 17 minute ballet sequence is stunning. And, you know, the, the kind of cinematography, the color cinematography that I maybe expected to be great with Covetus is great here. It's beautiful. It's shot so well. I love the scenes of Corone and, and um, Kelly like walking together by the bridge and that it, I just love scenes like that in musicals. Um, I, it's just so romantic and easy to kind of fall in love with. Um, I will say I, I do kind of see some issues with the writing in the movie at times, especially when it comes to a few of the characters. Like I got to say Oscar Levant, I don't know what his character's doing here. Like, I don't know what purpose he serves in the movie. Maybe a bit of comedic relief. I mean, he is very funny. And I'll be honest, I really like Levant's performance here. But just on a story level, I don't know what he's doing here um, whatsoever. Um, Nina Foch, her character, I feel like she kind of got shafted in the end of the movie. I really liked that character. I thought, you know, she's really pleasant and whatnot. And then at the end, it's just kind of like they forgot about her. Um, hopefully that's not too spoilery, but let's just say, you know, the, the ending she gets is not quite on the level of what some of the other characters get. Um, but Gene Kelly obviously has a lot of charisma. I love, um, the, you know, I got rhythm scene with all the kids and I, something I noticed about this movie that's different from some other musicals is that when they start getting into like their sing and dance routine, all the spectators are like watching them and like kind of swaying and like, as if they're watching a performance, whereas a lot of musicals, it's like everybody's still going out with their everyday lives. It's like people are watching a performance, which is kind of cool in a way. Um, can you know, it is kind of these, these guys running around Paris, having fun and while also trying to make a living. Um, so yeah, this is one for me where I would say for the most part, just the joy and the feeling I had watching it, um, made up for some of the issues I have um, with the plot and whatnot. Yeah, I am I'm sort of in the same lane as Christian. Um, I've seen this film multiple times before, and I think I sort of sat in that headspace that a lot of people have when it comes to this film is that they negatively react to it because of the films that it beat. I think there is a large amount of films... I think of something like Ordinary People or um, How Green Is My Valley. Mm. These films that are great, but they just are somehow history remembers them as being horrible because they beat the much more known films. Um, I think it's, it's a gorgeous film. Like from the beginning, you're just like in it. And I think that has a lot to do with Gene Kelly, who is just one of the... It's just one of the most charismatic performers ever to appear on screen. He, it doesn't matter if he's in, he just is so watchable. And I think 
I can kind of agree there are a few issues too. And I think the issues more so come in Corone, his co-star, who, while good, isn't as great as, say, a Debbie Reynolds would be mm. the year, the, ne- the following year. I think whether that has to do with um, Corone not primarily being an English speaker, um, maybe that was a the breakdown of their of, like they had chemistry like it's it's totally there when they're dancing together but when they're speaking together it's not necessarily as on as say Debbie Reynolds and Gene Kelly would be the the, the following year mm. um but no it's it's really a really amazing film and I think it shouldn't be overlooked because it beats say a streetcar or a place in the sun which are as you say, the kind of internet's more favorite of the films nominated this year. Right. And just looking at like who directed this, like Vincent Minnelli, he's one that you definitely can trust given a musical piece. I mean, we've already seen with like um, Mimi and St. Louis and Bandwagon, of course. Don't get me started on Gigi, please. My God. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was mean- about to say. Don't even get me started. Oh my! The day that that episode comes around, it's gonna save all opinion, all of my opinions until the end. But I mean, his direction here—it's just like every anytime I've seen something of his that is supposed to be this happy feeling movie, I always do feel happiness out of it. Um, I mean, that is to say, he, I mean, he did make some dramas, of course, but like the happy feeling movies that tug at the heartstrings—they work. Gigi, no, but. <laughs> This is the anti-GG movement right now, okay? <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, when you said you could trust him for musicals, I wanted to interrupt immediately to say, what about GG? Um, <laughs> I have so many thoughts. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait until we get to that episode, though. That's going to be fun. Oh, I can't imagine. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no, Manelli, like he is an amazing director. I mean, as you say, something like Meet Me in St. Louis or even another musical like Bells Are Ringing from a decade later is one of my favorite movies that not a lot of people have seen, I assume. Um, I mean, he, like, I'm trying to not just talk about the Dream Ballet because, like, I just want to fully discuss every single little detail of the Dream Ballet because it is so overwhelming. La La Land who? That's how, uh, yeah, this is right. how you do a dream ballet. <laughs> this is how you do it. You actually have people who can dance, you know, who physically are able to keep up. You like it's the film basically the film won all of the technical prizes because of that sequence. And the sequence makes sense in the narrative of a, mu- a musical from the time. I mean, there are so many musicals that dream ballets, but I think this knowing that it's an original piece, especially, is just incredible. And I really, I, I want more original musicals. And I think mm. were there as competent as musical directors as Vincent Minnelli was working today, we would be getting them, but there just doesn't seem, well, they're, they're probably working in theater. <laughs> they're just not given the filmmake mm. opportunities to match Minnelli. The fact that that whole like ballet dream sequence is 17 minutes long but even re-watching it it does not feel like it's 17 minutes long because there are moments in other films out there that feel long this goes by in such a breeze 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was reading that like the studio was very hesitant about letting Kelly do that sequence. Um, so obviously you're, you got this musical, it's all singing and dialogue. And then all of a sudden there's just like dialogueless 17 minute sequence near the very end of the movie. Um, thank goodness they let him do it because I, the movie I, I love and, and whatnot, and it's, it's great, but it wouldn't be the same without that. Um, that's kind of like be, the, the movie. It wouldn't be this. And it wouldn't be the same without those very tight pants that he wears in that one <laughs> moment of it all, too. As he shakes his behind to the screen multiple times. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that's, that's a favorite thing about fans of Gene Kelly. I mean, there's a Tumblr page dedicated. Well, I don't know if Tumblr still exists. There was an online page dedicated to Gene Kelly's behind in many films because that man has got a behind. <laughs> <laughs> oh christian do you want to go over everything that this won and was nominated for and all that yes yeah, so it won well okay first of all wait okay whoa, whoa before we get into that so brett you were you told me earlier you were reading that oscar book mm. right so this was not the odds on favorite to win right no um it, it said that you know most people going in thought it was going to be between Streetcar and A Place in the Sun. Um, I think Variety, they predicted that it would be A Place in the Sun that would take that in director and that Streetcar was going to get all four acting prizes. Um, definitely were not expecting an American in Paris. Gene Kelly was, I mean, he wasn't even there. He was in Germany. And he kind of had this mindset of like, the Academy doesn't really appreciate musicals. Um where things really, it sounds like, started to change during the ceremony was when Arthur Freed, the producer, won the Irving Thalberg Award. And people were surprised by that. And were like, oh, okay. And then that's kind of where the tide turned and then ended up winning. And I guess, yeah, the audience and everybody was pretty shocked. So hmm. it's fascinating. Right. And I mean, this won a fairly good amount. But if you look at it too, what I'm about to read it mostly is all technical awards. That is mm -hmm. like a, you know, here's this. Thank you for the evening, you know. But it did win picture, right? It did win story and screenplay, which today would just be original screenplay. Um, art direction, cinematography, costume design, all in the color category, and scoring of a musical picture. And then Gene Kelly won an honorary Oscar. I believe that that is his only Oscar type situation there. Um, in terms of winning anything. So there you go. And then nominated for director for Minnelli and film editing as well. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at like those technical categories, it's not even going against Streetcar or Place in the Sun. It's going against Quo Vetus. So that's an easy win. Yeah, you know, so yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> um, oh, I was going to say something. I can't remember. Oh my God. Um, oh, it just, uh, sorry. I was, I feel like um, I want to bring up Nina Falk. Um, sorry, that's how you, I, I believe you say her name. Nina Falk oh. is, <laughs> her name is said. Um, I think she's really good in this, even though I agree she is kind of left, like they don't give her a satisfying conclusion. Um, I think she is the, I mean, other than Gene Kelly, because that kind of goes without saying, like he's the performance you think about in the movie. I think she really does a lot with how little she has. Um, mm -hmm. I like how mysterious her character is. 
whether that's underwritten or how Fox plays it. I like how you kind of, when you're first introduced to her, you see her as this, oh, she's trying to pick up this man in to have him in the way that you can have a person off the street in a 1950s film. Um, and then you quickly discover that she actually is passionate about his art, mm-hmm. which, I mean, we don't see much of his art. Um, and I don't know if we can agree <laughs> with being passionate about it, but I do enjoy that there's kind of that misdirect you get. And I mean, Nina Falk would get nominated three years later for a film called Executive Suite in 1954 in Supporting Actress. So I kind of, I, I, I kind of see this non-nomination for An American in Paris being made up for three years later. Cause like, I, I think Nina Fox does a worthy enough job to be considered for a Supporting Actress nominee. And I myself would consider her more above some of the other choices that were made that year. Yeah, I agree. Like I I just grew to really like her character as the movie went on. And I, you know, like you said, when you she first came in, it was like I thought it was gonna be this character and she might be like a distraction between, you know, Jerry and Lisa, but I grew to really like her. And so that's what made the ending kind of tough for me with where her character just kind of almost disappears in the end in some ways. So yeah, I, agree. I almost wonder. I almost wonder if they had gotten her character set up with the Henry character by the end as he gives away Lise. I kind of enjoyed that while there's kind of this, um, he's the other man in her life. It's not necessarily, I mean, they are getting married, but in the way they speak about it, it's more so kind of this almost father figure who helped her Mm -hmm. from her struggles in life. And I like how quickly he kind of realized, I mean, you don't really get to know his inner thoughts, but you sort of see him giving her away because he's like, okay, I've helped her to the point where she can now be by herself. So I kind of enjoy that little element of this very small relationship note in the film. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. It seems like it's like a realization of, you know, this is not so much love as it is appreciation. And so she follows love. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Also, like any good movie, this was adapted for the stage as well a few years back. I remember a a very okay musical. (laughs) Oh, is it? I've not seen it. There's a recording of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, it's, it's very hard for anyone to fill in for the place of Gene Kelly. Right. Um, I know when it like first came out, there was, a, there had a lot of news things about like the choreography because it did win choreography mm-hmm. for the Tonys. And like, I actually like the biggest reason why I like, um, I'll build a stairway to paradise is because the actual recording of the Broadway version, that song goes so hard and it shouldn't. And I don't know. And then the, if you like watch this movie, that production also goes very hard. Like the lights on the steps and everything and the women slowly coming down beautifully staged. Okay. The great, great gowns, beautiful gowns. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Well, that is our best picture winner, at least in the Oscars mind. 
any final thoughts on that before we go into ranking these five movies? Uh, I will say evidently according to, I mean, I've heard this too, but when I was watching, I watched this on TCM. It was introduced Alicia Malone. She said that MGM put out right after that. They're sorry. They were just waiting in a place in the sun for a streetcar. Because obviously this, again, this wasn't like the front runner, but that's yeah. cute. And I tried to find it and I couldn't find anything like that. And it was Leo, wasn't it? Like the mascot? Yeah, like, it was yeah, Leo, yeah. Leo the Lion. Which they did that again mm-hmm. with Gigi because they evidently answered phones as like MGGM. <laughs> <laughs> now yeah. we're on MGM. <laughs> a, a sort of odd note about um, Minnelli is the same year he made the sequel to Father of the Bride, and so oh, yeah. which is obviously starred Elizabeth Taylor, and so she was very much everywhere in 1951 between her two kind of starring roles and then her little cameo, which none of us seem to have noticed. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, now we'll go ahead and we will rank these five movies and see where they land for us. And so I'm going to go ahead and kick us off here. Going up from five to one. My number five is obviously Quovetus. Number four, I have A Place in the Sun. Number three, Decision Before Dawn. Number two, An American in Paris. And number one, I would go with A Streetcar Named Desire. Owen, what do you got? Um, so similarly, my number five is Coviatus. My number four is Decision Before Dawn. Number three, An American Paris. Number two, Place in the Sun. And number one, no surprise, is A Streetcar Named Desire. All right, Christian. All right, number five, where it belongs, is Quovitis. Number four, A Place in the Sun. Number three, Decision Before Dawn. Number two, An American in Paris. And a streetcar named desire. All right. And as always, Toby went through and uh, calculated this for us to get our overall ranking. And that goes number five, Quovetus, number four, a place in the sun, number three, decision before dawn, number two, an American in Paris. And number one, of course, is a streetcar named desire. So in our minds, although we all do love an American in Paris, uh, I don't think we'd say the Academy went with the best choice that year. Um, that they should have gone with streetcar. All right. Well, yes. So that is what we think of the nominees. Of course, as always, we will be back to discuss six more movies from this year, as well as give our full honorable mentions and our personal awards for this year. So you can see all those categories. Um, and so for those listening, thanks as always, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, um, Apple podcasts, wherever you listen and check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd. Thanks as always to Joshua Arnoldi for doing our theme music and Owen, thanks so much to you for coming on. Obviously looking forward to you being back for the next episode. Any final thoughts from you or anything you want to plug or anything along those lines? Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm very happy that we've all decide on the same number one together um i'm not really surprised um going into it um <laughs> but yeah no i'm very happy to be be on and come back again to discuss um other movies from this year um i guess in terms of places to find me you can find me on twitter talking about film a lot letterboxd as well where i do have 
a list dedicated to my favorite films from 1951. Um, I've seen over 100 movies that would have been eligible that year and <laughs> and have posted my full kind of choices for the film year that is 1951. Um, and then you can also find, I have a blog called An Irish Person Awards where I do yearly post my favorite in film for the year. Very nice. Didn't realize we had such a, a 1951 expert on here. So I'm looking forward to, to the next episode. Christian, any final thoughts from you? None. Um, as always, follow me on Letterboxd. I'm writing reviews again. I took like two months off with my surgery and everything. But even if I write a sentence, I think that's enough for me. Like, for example, my last review is of Misery. All I wrote was James Kahn, and that's it. <laughs> R.I.P. Yes. R.I.P. Right. James Kahn. Yes. Awesome. Well, thanks for listening and be sure to tune in next time. Bye.